what if we uh, looked at all of the comparative psychology, which has been an incredible amount of research, even in just the last decade, we take that and compare it to all of the work in evolutionary neurobiology, and then we map all of that to concepts in artificial intelligence, is there a first approximation that reveals itself when we compare these three things? If you think about sources of learning through the evolutionary story, um, uh, you can almost see the entire breakthrough, five breakthroughs model through the following lens. It has been a progressive expansion of, of getting new sources of learning for brains. Good day, brain-inspired listeners. Welcome to Brain Inspired. Uh, I'm Paul. Today, my guest is Max Bennett. Max has co-founded and or CEO'd multiple AI uh, and technology companies, making him an entrepreneur. By many other countless hours, however, he has studied brain-related sciences. Those long hours of research of his have paid off in the form of this book, A Brief History of Intelligence, Evolution, AI, and the Five Breakthroughs That Made Our Brains. And you'll hear Max talk about this in a moment more, but it's, uh, I think, worth repeating here that three lines of research formed the basis for how Max synthesized knowledge into the ideas in his current book. Findings from comparative psychology, which is roughly comparing brains and minds of different species. Findings from evolutionary neuroscience, how brains have evolved, in other words. And findings from artificial intelligence, especially the algorithms developed to carry out functions. So Max assimilated lots of research from those three lines of research uh, to form what he calls uh, the five breakthroughs that made our brains. And during our discussion, we go through most of the breakthroughs, if not all of them in some capacity. And a recurring theme is that a single breakthrough that Max cites may explain multiple new abilities. So for example, uh, the evolution of the neocortex may have endowed early mammals with the ability to simulate or imagine what isn't immediately present. And this ability might further explain mammals' capacity to engage in vicarious trial and error so imagining possible actions before trying them out, the capacity to engage in counterfactual learning, which is uh, what would have happened if things went differently than they did, and the capacity for episodic memory and imagination. So the book is filled with unifying accounts like that, uh, and it makes for a great read. And you should strap in because Max gives sort of a masterclass uh, about many of the ideas in his book. You can learn more about Max and a link to the book in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 181. And there you can also learn how to support the show on Patreon if you so desire. Thank you as always to all my Patreon supporters. Okay, here's Max. I cannot be the first one to say it. So the, the book is called A Brief History of Intelligence. Did it start off brief and it and it grew? <laughs> It uh, it did start off briefer than it ended up becoming. It's funny, uh, the original draft was like 350 pages, so it took a lot of culling to bring it down. Okay. Uh, and I say 350 pages, not including the end notes or anything. So right. yes, I think a fair critique is it's not the most brief. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't know if that was like a, just an I ironic title or... Um... I think we kept it a little bit ironic. I think the irony underlying it is for covering 600 million years of brain evolution, it is comparably 
brief. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you, you know, you're not a quote unquote practicing neuroscientist. Um, you are, well, how would you describe yourself? Uh, um, labels are always funny things. I mean, I, I'd say I'm an AI entrepreneur. I mean, my career has been in uh, commercializing AI technology. Um, and over the last four years, I've become independently really fascinated with neuroscience. So I've sort of self-taught, uh, and then ended up collaborating with a lot of neuroscientists over email and then publishing some of my own papers and getting loosely involved in some labs. Um, but yes, I don't have the sort of classic training uh, in neuroscience. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I recently had a philosopher, Laura um, Gradowski, on the podcast, and she um, specializes in f fringe theories, essentially like looking at the history of you know people who have started off as fringe people and or theories who have started off as fringe and then uh, eventually become mainstream. And she makes an argument that we should pay attention to all uh, theories, fringe and or not. Um, but one of the one of the interesting characteristics uh, of people who often start as quote unquote fringe, which is a fringy word, um, is that they are experts in one domain and then, uh, you know, come in and visit a new domain, right? And then kind of inject like fresh ideas. And I, I know one of the one of the people that comes to mind is Jeff Hawkins. Uh, and I know that he's been an influence uh, on you and, and me as well. And so he kind of uh, foots that bill. So how have you found it as a sort of outsider? Because uh, I know that you've had a lot of running conversations with a lot of um, well-known neuroscientists and uh, leaders of the field, et cetera. How have you found their acceptance of you? And um... I think it's been really wonderful. I mean, I think the refreshing thing perhaps is uh, I have no ulterior motive. You know, I'm not trying to get ahead in some academic career. I'm not trying to get, you know, tenure. I'm just curious uh, and I'm just fascinated in the topic. Um, and I think that uh, for folks who are, in the sometimes political uh, academic world, I think folks find that refreshing. Um, and I've been really uh, humbled and honored at the degree with which folks have been accepting and taking me under their wing. I mean, I take a student student mindset, like I wanna learn from uh, folks. Um, so yeah, I've been really humbled at uh, the folks, Joseph Ledoux, Carl Friston, uh, you know, Eva Jablanka, who, uh, David Reddish, who have just, you know, become mentors of mine. Um, we started collaborating. So I think it's been really awesome how open the community uh, actually has been to, uh, you know, a curious outsider. So the book is delightful. Uh, it's a extremely um, pleasant read. Um, it, it's patient and careful and well-written. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. Why evolution? What, what made you so what I, I think what I want to ask you is, so you have kind of an engineering mindset, perhaps, right? And uh, there's a lot of talk about reverse engineering the brain um, to understand intelligence. And we'll talk about maybe what intelligence even is. Um, but how did you get on the track of uh, thinking that evolution was important to understand in order to understand intelligence? Yeah, I think folks in uh, technology in general have a bent towards looking at things through the lens of ordered modifications. So, for example, mm. um, when I 
you know, when I take an entrepreneurial lens at looking at new business areas, new technologies, it's very common to look at things as a, you know, technology ecosystem. And we try to understand what new uh, technology is introduced. So the internet's introduced and how does that change the overall system? Or uh, we all of a sudden have, you know, exponentially growing compute. Uh, how does that change? Uh, the ecosystem. Um, so, or we think about product strategy, you know, you think about Tesla's product strategy, we start with, uh, you know, a high end roadster, then we move to model S, then we move to model three, etc. So I think there's, in general, a cognitive bias towards trying to understand complexity through starting from a simple place, and then observing modifications to how we got today. I think that's just a cognitive bias I came with. Um, and so I think presented with a curiosity, to understand the brain and then the maelstrom of complexity that is the human brain. I think I perhaps had a bent to try and take a similar approach. Um, and so, you know, McLean's triune brain is the most popularized evolutionary framework for understanding the brain. Um, but it's been almost entirely discredited. I think in some ways, uh, you know, unfairly, um, it's almost like it's become too popular to the sense that people have over indexed on what McLean really meant. He really meant it as a first approximation. Can, well, um, can you, everyone... can you just like overview picture of the, of the triune brain for the people who don't yes. know? So McLean's triune brain is the idea and pr almost everyone's heard about it in popular culture. Um, but his idea is that the human brain is made up of three separate brains, um, that track the evolutionary history of how the brain came to be. So at its core, we have this, uh, the brainstem largely is our reptilian brain. Um, it is the origin of our uh, sort of survival instincts and basic reflexes. And it's called the reptilian brain because the argument is that if we look into the brain of a lizard, all they have is uh, the presumed areas of our reptilian brain. Then there is um, sometimes called the limbic system or what McLean called the paleomammalian complex, which is the structures that evolved in early mammals. Um, and, uh, you know, he argued that that was the origin of our emotions. Um, and then above that is the neo-mammalian complex, uh, which is uh, parts of the brain that evolved in later mammals, neo being new. Um, and that's the origin of cognition. Um, and so the idea is uh, the, the human brain is made up of these three layers. Um, and each of these layers has its own sort of mechanisms for, un for uh, making behaviors. They're at war with each other um, and it tracks our evolutionary history. So early mammals, like a rat, has only the reptilian brain and the paleomammalian complex. And then us and, and uh, other apes have all three of these systems. Um, and it's largely been discredited for a few reasons. One, uh, if we the modern work that's been done in evolutionary neuroscience does not track this. Um, so if you look in the brain of a lizard, we see a bunch of uh, phylogenetically related structures to a limbic system. Um, so it's not the case that they only have the quote unquote reptilian brain. Uh, the second issue is these three functions, instincts, uh, emotions, and cognition do not in fact delineate cleanly across these mm -hmm. three structures. So there are cognitive functions uh, in the supposed paleomammalian complex, perhaps also in the brainstem. Emotions emerge clearly from neomammalian uh, structures as well. So the, these functions don't delineate cleanly. But the biggest critique for me coming from, uh, you know, a more engineering perspective and, and you know, uh, trying to understand mechanistically how the brain works is this model doesn't really give us anything of a roadmap for how to reverse engineer how the brain works, right? So the, it, it comes from 
the lens of psychology, mm -hmm. which is we're talking about instincts, we're talking about emotion, we're talking about cognition. This doesn't have any clear mapping to concepts in the world of artificial intelligence to give me any starting point for how to understand mechanistically how the brain works. So throwing out the McLean triune brain, we have nothing to fill that void, right? <laughs> so what's been uh, left is just Oh, it's just really complicated and we don't know. <laughs> which and is I true. It's true. It's which complicated. It is true. Yeah. It is true. Um, but I do think there are there is value in first approximations um, because the human brain does not have the cognitive capacity to uh, fathom, you know, a billion different nodes in an evolutionary journey if we even had that. So first approximations are useful if they have explanatory power and if we understand that they're not perfect, right? So it's important to understand that. So I went on this long journey originally for myself, um, and then I stumbled on what I thought ended up be, would be useful for others, and hence why I shared it. But what I wanted to do is say, okay, what if we uh, looked at all of the comparative psychology, which has been an incredible amount of research, even in just the last decade. And so in comparative psychology, we have all of these intellectual faculties across different species, right? So we do studies on fish, we do study on lizards, we do studies on mammals, primates, et cetera. And then we, we take that and compare it to all of the work in evolutionary neurobiology, meaning uh, which has also been an exploding field where we now have a pretty good understanding of the order of brain modifications um, over uh, the evolutionary history of the brain. And then we map all of that to concepts in artificial intelligence, meaning uh, we understand what capacity algorithms work and do not work. Um, and so that puts a constraints on how we can understand how the brain works. And is there a first approximation that reveals itself when we compare these three things? And what I found is the answer to that was a resounding yes. Um, there is a worthwhile simplified first approximation where if we compare brain structures that evolved at certain places in our evolution and the seeming uh, emergence of certain uh, new behavioral capacities, uh, what ends up happening is a suite of behavioral capacities that seem disjointed. So for example, in mammals, I'm going to, we'll get into this in more detail, I'm sure. In mammals, there's good evidence compared to most non-mammalian vertebrates like fish. Mammals uniquely have vicarious trial and error, um, uh, meaning it can, uh, mammals can imagine possible futures, episodic like memory and counterfactual learning. These are three seemingly very different capacities. And the only new brain uh, structure we see in mammals really emerges the neocortex. Mm -hmm. But all of these can actually be understood as uh, emerging from really one new function, which is the ability to simulate, um, the ability to imagine a state of the world that is not the current one. And you can apply that to imagining futures, to re-rendering pasts, and considering alternative past choices. And that's just one example of how when we compare all three of these uh, sort of fields, uh, comparative psychology, AI, um, and evolutionary neurobiology, what seems like disjointed litanies of new abilities emerging and brain structures actually get really well, uh, I think, as a first approximation, aligned. Um, so that was the core idea of the five breakthroughs model, which is these five fundamental steps uh, in brain evolution, which which I found really fun and fascinating. Yeah. So so simulating would be the third of those uh, yep. five. And I Part of the reason why the book is so enjoyable is because everything is so ordered and neat. Uh, and so one has to one, I mean, it must have taken you so much time to sort of categorize these things 
as you're going through, like uh, I, as a reader um, and as someone who studies the brain, I'm curious, like how you came up with five. We live in a world of uh, what are they called? Listicles, right? So, <laughs> right. So, and and we want to put things in these neat and ordered um, lists and you've done that, but then, you know, each of the five, you, you know, unify, like you just did with simulating three different things um, as one, one of the breakthroughs explains these uh, sets of things. Um, so do you want to just go through like the overarching five, what you call breakthroughs yeah. uh, over time? Sure. Um, so the first, well, first, it's important to acknowledge that um, first approximations are exercises in trying to decide what features are important or relevant in your approximation versus not. So, for example, um, to critique the own, to add complexity to the model, uh, which is fair, you know, I breakthrough two is what the brain structures that emerged in early vertebrates. Breakthrough three is the brain structures that have emerged in early mammals. It is, of course, uh, ridiculous to claim that there were no brain modifications between the first vertebrates 500 million years ago and the first mammals 150 million years ago. But what is most surprising looking at the arch between those periods is how little actually changed. Hmm. So it's not to say that nothing changed. Um, but it is to say, if we're going to draw a first approximation, it is surprising over that long stretch of time how there weren't many meaningful brain modifications. And then with mammals, we see this dramatic new structure emerge, the neocortex. But but yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, first approximations are exercises in deciding what is relevant to include versus what can we, you know, what can we accept fewer variables for simplification at the cost of, you know, explanatory power. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, the five breakthroughs uh, starts with steering. So, uh, which for the, those technical in the audience would be taxis navigation. Um, so uh, the first brains, uh, a good model organism for this is a nematode um, or early bilaterians. Uh, and, uh, you know, before bilaterians, there were no brains. So the first animals uh, with neurons were probably most akin to a coral, um, or, uh, which had a nerve net. So neurons existed, but there were no brains. And so um, it poses the, the really big question, why did brains evolve at all? Why do we need uh, this sort of centralized cluster of neurons? Why can't we just have a nerve net? And uh, if you look at uh, really simplified bilaterians, such as C. elegans, uh, which is uh, the most famous species of nematode, <laughs> um, what's so important about the centralized brain is it enables you to make very clear trade-offs. So if you look at how a nematode navigates, uh, it only has 302 neurons, uh, C. elegans does, um, and it clearly does not model the world. It doesn't see, it has no uh, like lens-shaped eyes that only has photosensitive neurons that can detect the presence or lack of light or the presence of a certain smell. And yet it almost always will find food if you put it in a Petri dish with food. And if you put a, if you put a predator smell, it will always find its way, uh, its way to get away from it. And so how does it do this? Well, taxis navigation is this incredibly clever algorithm for navigating in a world without understanding the world. And the way it works is this. If you have a body plan, uh, which a bilaterian, I guess I should explain what a bilaterian is. Uh, <laughs> a bilateral body plan um, is a body plan with symmetry across your uh, central plane. So if you drew a line through a human, uh, our right side on average is symmetrical with our left side. This is not the case for a jellyfish, which has radial symmetry across a central axis, so it's radially symmetric. And all navigation systems from 
uh, uh, worms to cars to planes all have bilateral symmetry. And that's not a coincidence from an engineering perspective, it is much more efficient to build a navigation system by giving it the ability to move forward and backwards. So have a, something that's optimized for forward momentum and then have the ability to just uh, uh, turn. So you have a plane, you could imagine building a flying structure where it has engines and radially symmetric around it, where it hovers and can move in any direction. But that would be way less efficient than saying, let's just have something that moves forward and then have the ability to turn. But a, ro so, but a rocket uh, is symmetric, is a bilateral, bilateral, how do you say it? Bilaterian. Bilaterian, uh, and also uh, radio, radially symmetric, and, and a jellyfish so, as well, right? So a rocket, um, most rockets are actually bilaterally symmetric. Um, not all of them, but most oh, of them are yeah. where they have, if you look at the fins, uh, they're actually going to uh, have fins like that. But you're right, you can build a radially symmetric system. Um, you, you can. Uh, Just a nitpicking most, point is not important, but yeah. But no, you're yeah. right. You can. But it is interesting that most navigation systems are more efficient when they're designed with bilateral mm. symmetry. Yeah. And so if we go back to the very first bilaterian, um, which we use nematodes as a model organism, taxis navigation uh, and bilateral symmetry go hand in hand. So the way this algorithm works is if you have sensory neurons that detect increasing good things, so that can be the increasing concentration of a food smell um, or the decreasing concentration of a predator smell. That means things are getting better. And then you have another set of neurons that detect decreasing uh, good things or increasing bad things. So they have a sensory neuron that detects the, the decreasing concentration of a food smell or the increasing concentration of predator smell. And those connect us two simple things, a motor neuron that uh, drives forward momentum is activated by the increasing good things. And the a motor neuron that drives turning is activated by decreasing good things or increasing bad things. And if you just have something that does that, it will eventually through turning away from bad things and turning towards good things, find its way towards the source of a food smell or find its way away from a predator smell. And what's so clever about this is it was available to uh, early animals, which you know, going from a jellyfish to a mammalian brain would have been evolutionarily impossible. You can't make that jump. But going from a jellyfish to a simple brain that simply turns away from uh, bad things and towards good things was was available. And so the reason you need a brain for this is you need to be able to make trade-offs. So uh, you can put a nematode, for example, in a Petri dish. Uh, this is some of my favorite nematode experiments and put a copper line down the a barrier down the center of the petri dish and for whatever reason nematodes steer away from copper because it's somewhat toxic for them and the other side of the copper barrier put a food smell okay and what's so cool is nematodes will make trade-offs as to whether or not they will choose to cross this barrier and it entirely depends on two things the constant the relative concentration of the food smell in the copper barrier and how hungry they are the more hungry a nematode is the more willing they are to cross the copper barrier and the higher the concentration of the food smell the more willing they are to cross the copper barrier but this means that they're making trade-offs in their brain mm. it means that the neuron that's getting excited by the food smell is in competition with the neuron that's getting excited by copper, which is trying to get them to turn away from it. And in order to do that, there needs to be some common neural machinery to compare these things. And when we look at a nematode brain, we've actually mapped exactly that circuitry. So this is, 
you know, why, and this isn't, you know, uniquely my theory, a lot of people would, would uh, corroborate this idea that the first brains evolved for this sort of central uh, comparison trade-off mechanism in taxes navigation. Can I, can I interrupt um, and ask, uh, so I, I, I should know this, do single cells also do that? I don't know if single yes. cells. Right. So, okay. So, you know, I, I keep coming back. So uh, as we learn more and more uh, about organisms, we learn how smart single cells can be, right? And they can learn and, and they don't have brains. So um, is there something special uh, about, you know, neuro they don't have neurons, right? So is is there something special about a neural net versus a single cell who could perform this, that same feat? So what's, I think, almost beautiful about life in the universe is how it's founded on randomness, which is just like random mutations. And yet common things are repeatedly recapitulated, um, mm -hmm. which is just this like almost beautiful fact about life where taxis navigation exists in almost all single celled organisms. That's how they move around. It's the same principle. Um, but when you have a large multicellular organism, the mechanisms of taxis navigation, which is protein receptors that drive changes in protein propellers, doesn't work. You can't move a huge multicellular organism like a nematode, which has millions or more cells using those basic protein propellers. So the same algorithm was recapitulated in completely different medium, which was sensory neurons and, and muscles. Um, to enable a large multicellular organism to move around, um, but the algorithm's the same, um, which I which I think is really fascinating. Okay, sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. I just, no, no, no. Yeah. That's it's great. So from steering, uh, one key component from an AI perspective that evolved in uh, these. Well, actually, there's one cool thing that I think is not often appreciated that uh, I find really fascinating about taxis navigation. And nematodes, and then I'll go to the next step. So if you look at nematodes um, and uh, you look at dopamine and serotonin neurons, so you know there's been so much talked about uh, these two neur neuromodulators, um, and we know they have really interesting effects across vertebrates, humans. Um, but nematodes give us a window into what was the first function of dopamine, which we you know think about as a reward signal. Um, which drives seeking and pursuit, and serotonin, which we which we know has some loose association with satiation and satisfaction and delay of gratification. And if you look at a nematode, the difference in these two neurons, at least the there's multiple, but the difference in the fundamental function of these two neurons and nematodes have like another beautiful synergy with those two ideas. The dopamine neurons in a nematode are sensory neurons that detect bacteria, food around the nematode. And it drives a behavioral state of exploitation or dwelling. It makes it slow down and turn and, and do local area restricted search, uh, which is a primitive version of like wanting and, and seeking. The serotonin neurons are sensory neurons in the throat of a nematode. It detects when it's actually consuming food and it uh, drives satiation, meaning the pausing and resting after eating enough. So the, the dichotomy between dopamine, seeking pursuit, nearby rewards, and serotonin, the actual receiving of rewards and satiation and satisfaction, goes all, you can see that algorithmic blueprint all the way in the very first nematode, which is sensory neurons for nearby good stuff and uh, sensory neurons for good things already happening. And I just think that's so beautiful. <laughs> Obviously, those two things have been elaborated and are, do more complicated things in human brains, but that basic template we still see across the, mm. the animal kingdom. Okay. So 
But from an AI perspective, what's the fundamental thing we get from steering is a reward signal. Um, with steering comes the categorization of things in the world into good and bad. And what's interesting about a nematode is unlike a human brain, the sensory neurons of a nematode directly encode what's called valence, which is just the goodness and badness of something. It's not the case in the human brain. Uh, the sensory neurons in your eye do not encode valence. They do not tell you, they do not detect whether something you see is good or bad. Valence is encoded later in the brain in its uh, interpretation of whether what it just observed is in fact good or bad. But the sensory neurons of a nematode are not like that. They directly encode whether something is good or bad. So the sensory neuron that detects increasing food smells directly drives forward momentum. So we have these reward signals. When we move forward to the first uh, vertebrate brains, um, what we see is the emergence of reinforcement learning. Um, and reinforcement learning is this idea of learning arbitrary behaviors through trial and error. Um, and there's a really rich history of reinforcement learning in AI. Um, and we've started to merge this. There's been a wonderful sort of marrying between neuroscience and AI, which I think probably a lot of folks on your podcast are familiar with. Um, with temporal difference learning being an algorithm that we have found in uh, vertebrate brains. We talk about this in human and monkey brains, but temporal difference learning, all the evidence suggests also exists in mm. fish brains. Mm. Um, oh, you write a lot about fish. I found that very interesting that you were so uh, studied up on, on fish, which is not a sort of a normal, uh, not part of the normal group of uh, organisms to think about in terms of brains. So just an aside. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, well, I think um, I think what's so interesting about fish is uh, when we want to understand what emerge in early vertebrates, and I and the reason why I think understanding what emerge in early vertebrates is so important is because I think we misattribute the function, the early function of the neocortex, because we don't actually look at what existed prior to the neocortex. So so much of studies have, are done on rats and monkeys which um, have obviously right. the brain structures of mammals, but other vertebrates do a lot of really intelligent things without a neocortex. Um, and so um, if we realize that a lot of the things that we attribute to the neocortex, such as recognizing complex objects in the world are done readily by a fish that does not have a neocortex and actually has structures that were precursors to the neocortex, it begs a question, why did the neocortex evolve? What was the what was the driving adaptive value of a neocortex? Because if the function we're attributing to it existed readily prior, then it's a hard argument to say that the reason we evolved neocortex was to recognize things in the world. Um, and so I found fish studies, which I agree are are not given, I think, enough <laughs> credit, really useful in trying to delineate what was the uh, sort of behavioral abilities that exist in early vertebrates and what really changed in, in mammals. And so, um, you know, I, there's the bunch of fish textbooks. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. There's a lot of fascinating, uh, work on it. For example, um, you know, we think about the neocortex as enabling us to do really great object detection. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, mammals are really good at one shot identifying an object, uh, despite changes in rotation or changes in scale. Um, and that's something we've worked really hard in AI to get convolutional neural networks to do. In a lot of ways, mammals are still better at one shot identifying 3D rotation than, than CNNs. And we don't really understand how uh, mammal brains do that. But then I asked the question, okay, um, can fish do that? And the answer is yes. 
A fish brain can one-shot identify an object despite being rotated in space. Um, fish can identify the same face. You can train a fish to squirt water on a specific human face and get a reward. And if you show the picture of that face rotated, it'll still go to the same face. You can do the same thing with pictures of uh, different uh, creatures. Um, it identifies a rotated frog in one shot um, despite it being totally different, which a CNN does not do. You need astronomical amount of data to get a convolutional neural network to identify rotated objects, um, which is interesting because a fish brain has no neocortex. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, they do have uh, the precursor to the uh, a precursor to the cortex called the pallium. And if you go into a fish pallium, um, you see at least three structures, which are, it's a three layered. So the pallium is three layered structure akin to our olfactory cortex hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And they actually uh, have phylogenetic origins to the same thing as our, uh, our hippocampus, our amygdala, our pallial amygdala, the cortical amygdala, um, and all olfactory cortex. So if you look at uh, a fish um, pallium, they have a ventral pallium, um, which is akin to the cortical uh, amygdala. They have a medial pallium, which is akin to our hippocampus, and they have a lateral pallium, which is akin to our olfactory cortex. And so somehow out of this structure or even more primitive structures like the tectum, they are able to real-time identify rotations and, and objects. Um, so uh, I think what becomes really interesting to jump ahead, I guess, to mammals is if fish are able to do that, and they can clearly learn arbitrary behaviors through trial and error. Uh, you can train fish to jump through hoops through giving them rewards just fine. Um, they can do all. They can remember this over a year. Uh, a year later, they will remember how to do all of these tricks. Why did the neocortex evolve? And uh, in early mammals, and so if you look at the suite of comparative psychology studies, meaning what, ab what abilities do we see in uh, non-mammalian vertebrates? Um, and what abilities do we see in most mammals? There are three that stand out. Um, one is vicarious, this is what we talked about in the beginning. One is vicarious trial and error. Um, this is the ability not just to learn through trying and failing at things, but to pause and consider options before acting. Mm. And this is a huge thing in AI that we're trying to figure out how to do well, um, which is you know, also called planning. Um, so a, a rat, uh, David Radish has done some of my favorite studies on this. Um, if you record hippocampal cell, place cells in a rat, which uh, get activated based on its location in a maze, and you watch and you train a rat to go to different sides of a maze to get different rewards, when a rat pauses at a choice point, and sniffs and looks back and forth, you can literally watch its hippocampal place cells playing out each option before acting. Mm -hmm. So we can literally go into a brain of a rat and see it deciding between choices. When we go into fish brain, there are place-like cells in the homologous or organ uh, 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 region of the hippocampus, the medial pallium, but they never encode future states. They only mm -hmm. encode the current state that they're in. We do not see them playing out options. Um, and so, Poor fish. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess as an aside, uh, there could be studies that are revealed in the next 10 years that show fish do this. So we're, we're sort of operating on somewhat sparse sure. evidence. Yeah. So it would be fascinating if someone did discover fish brains able to do this. But as of now, the evidence doesn't suggest fish are able to do that. Um, so, so that's one ability that rats clearly have. 
The other is counterfactual learning. Um, so David Reddish also did some amazing studies, um, in something called Restaurant Row, where he had a rat go around this, uh, these four corners, where in each time it passed one of these corridors, a sound would occur that said whether or not if they went to the right to try and get food, it would be released immediately in like three seconds, or they would have to wait 45 seconds. And it became clear that some of these rats preferred certain food over others. Some were like tasteless pellets, some were like cherries, which, which rats love. So going around this maze or this uh, restaurant row presented rats with irreversible choices. At each moment, I either can choose to go get this food or I can go to the next one and hope that it's released quickly, not in 45 seconds. And what he found is when rats passed up the opportunity to get a really quick meal, so it said three seconds to get a banana, and it said, no, I'm going to try and get the cherry, which I like more. And then the sound for 45 seconds was alerted. It showed all the signs of regretting their choice. It paused, it reactivated in their orbital frontal cortex, the representation of the foregone choice. And the next time around, it changed its, its behavior to be more likely to actually wait because it didn't want to make the same mistake again. So that shows signs of counterfactual learning. Um, one, another one of my favorite studies of this in monkeys uh, is you can, or chimpanzees, you can teach chimpanzees to play rock, paper, scissors. Um, and uh, in rock, paper, scissors, uh, what happens when you see a, a, an ape play rock, paper, scissors, if it plays paper against you playing scissors, meaning it lost, the next move, it becomes biased towards playing rock. Now, this doesn't make sense in standard reinforcement learning. In standard reinforcement learning, if I lost playing paper, I would be equally more likely to play rock and scissors next time. By standard, you, the mean, thing I you mean model free, correct? Uh, correct, yeah. yes. Yes, so, so, yeah. so there's two main types of reinforcement learning. One is called model free reinforcement learning, um, which is what I argue evolved in early vertebrates where you don't play out futures. You're just acting in direct response to stimuli. Model-based reinforcement learning is the idea that you have a model of the world that's rich enough that enables you to imagine taking actions and sufficiently accurately predict the consequences such that you can make choices as uh, using your own imagination. Mm -hmm. So with model-free reinforcement learning, you would not expect an animal to be more likely to choose rock next. What you would expect is for them to be equally likely to choose rock or scissors, the two things that didn't lose in the last move. But, but, uh, but chimpanzees don't do that. They're more likely to choose the move that would have won in the prior uh, game, which only makes sense if they're actually able to imagine the move that would have won uh, and then they become more biased to do that. So that's also really strong evidence for model-based reinforcement learning in, in uh, chimpanzees. Um, so that's counterfactual learning. And then the last one is episodic memory, um, which we, there's a lot of controversy around that word. Um, when I say episodic memory, I don't mean the presence of an episodic self, which is a concept in psychology, meaning the ability to, uh, or an autobiographical self, the ability to imagine you in the future and past. I, I think most evidence would suggest that only emerged in primates. Um, but I do mean the ability to render a state of the world in the past. Um, sometimes people call that episodic like memory. Um, but that at a bare minimum does exist, I think, in uh, non-primate mammals. Uh, for example, the, my favorite studies of this, so there's two types of studies for episodic memory. One I think is not very convincing, which is this what, where, when memory. Mm -hmm. So can 
an animal remember the location of something when it happened and what was there. Um, coming from an AI background, I could conceive of how you could do something like that with model-free reinforcement learning. It's not very convincing that that requires simulation. But there's another category of tests that people do, um, which I do find convincing, episodic memory, where they do the following. This has been done on rats, where you present a rat with a maze, meaning you pick them up and you put them in a maze randomly throughout the day. And where food is in that maze depends on whether or not they had had food in the prior three minutes of them being presented with the, with the maze. But the maze is equally paired with both sides, places where the reward is. So you can't model free, just say, when I'm presented with this maze, I always go to the right and get food. It depends on what happened just prior, which, which you would think requires them to pause and imagine what just happened and then make a choice. And what's even more convincing is rats can readily do this, but they stop being able to do this if you inhibit their hippocampus. So if you sim if you inhibit the hippocampus, which should prevent them from being able to re-render these past events, then they no longer are able to remember what just happened. So I think this is pretty convincing evidence that what they're doing is imagining something that just happened and using that to inform their future mm -hmm. behavior. So that so th those three things kind of encompass the simulating uh, yes. breakthrough, which is which was number three. I mean, you know, to, to fast forward, because presumably you were interested. So I know that you have an interest in, in the neocortex. And I don't know if that's where this all started for you, um, because you do a lot of like modeling and theoretical work uh, in terms of what the neocortex uh, can do, sequencing and learning, et cetera. And so um, presumably you were like many of us, uh, enthralled with how awesome humans are. And so we're kind of stepping through and your book kind of steps through toward how awesome humans are. Um, and, and the fourth breakthrough, uh, was mentalizing. So we're sort of, uh, stepping our way toward how awesome humans are, I suppose. Yeah, I think, um, so what's interesting is in the transition from mammals to primates, uh, we see not a lot of brain changes, uh, the, the, the fundamental, the brain scaled a lot. So a, you know, early primate brains were surely much larger than early mammal brains. But if you compare the brain of a chimpanzee to that of a rat, um, there are not many differences. I mean, the fundamental interconnections and fundamental brain structures are really all there. Um, the only two really different things is the presence of what's called granular prefrontal cortex. It's called granular because it has uh, granule cells in layer four. So most neocortical columns or regions of neocortex are, is a six layered structure. Um, however, the frontal cortex of early mammal brains only has five layers. It's missing layer four, which also exists in the homologous regions of the human brain. A bunch of really interesting things about why that might be, which we can get into. Yeah, we should. But but in human brains and in primate brains, uh, there's also a region of frontal cortex that is granular, that has layer four, um, and that's called granular prefrontal cortex, which, which encompasses many, many different subregions. But that is unique to primates. Mm. And then there are certain regions of the posterior cortex, sensory cortex, um, uh, called the superior temporal sulcus and the temporal parietal junction. Other than these sort of two uh, areas. So like the new areas of frontal cortex, new areas of sensory cortex, there isn't much different about primate brains. So the question is, what do these two new regions actually do? 
And the history of this is, is interesting because uh, early on, we struggled to understand what even granular prefrontal cortex does because a human can have really gross damage to uh, this region of their brain and still function relatively normally. It will, it's not obvious um, when you meet someone uh, who has damage to the granular prefrontal cortex, whereas it is immediately, if you have damage to your agranular prefrontal cortex, you become relatively unconscious. Um, if you meet, they become, or they suffer from mutism, meaning they just won't even speak. If you have damage to non-primate areas of sensory cortex, like visual cortex, you'll become blind. So it's immediately obvious when someone has damaged to these regions, but it's much more nuanced when you see damage to these primate areas. Um, but the more we look into them, a, a reasonable explanation of what these things do, especially with the connectivity, is it renders a model of the older mammalian model. Um, so granular prefrontal cortex does not get direct sensory input. A granular prefrontal cortex gets direct input from uh, the amygdala and the hippocampus. It gets all of this input about the emotional state of the animal. Granular prefrontal cortex only gets input from a granular prefrontal cortex. So you can kind of, as a first approximation, look at it as a second order model of the first order model that emerged in mammals. And in this way, there is a sort of layered, the, 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 the broad idea of McLean of brain layering, I think does in some ways apply. And what I think is interesting is if you think about this conceptually, what does modeling your own simulation mean? So if, if you think about the original mammalian structures, which is either simulating the current state, which is what could be called perception by inference. So modeling what I'm currently seeing or simulating, meaning modeling what's not currently, this is all broadly thinking. This is what we mean by thinking. So granular prefrontal cortex is kind of modeling one, an animal's own thinking, um, which in psychology, you know, people use the term metacognition, thinking about thinking. And what is interesting, this idea of modeling your own simulation, uh, one is a, is a good explanation of the uh, uh, sort of inabilities that emerge from a granular prefrontal cortex damage um, so that uh, we can see big challenges in theory of mind. So people with uh, damaged granular prefrontal cortex really struggle to think about other people's uh, current mental state um, and reason and take the perspective of others. Uh, the other really interesting thing is there's a great study that showed uh, what when you ask people to imagine uh, a future state of the world and you compare someone with hippocampal damage, a control, and someone with granular prefrontal damage, you see fascinating differences. The person with hippocampal damage struggles to imagine a rich future scene of the world. So they will not describe things like the color of the trees. Um, or the rich detail of the sky, but they will readily describe themselves. So they can happily describe their own personality traits. The person with granular prefrontal damage, but no hippocampal damage, describes a future absent of many of the rich details of the external world, um, or sorry, containing many of the details of the external world, but lacks themselves. They can't imagine their own sort of autobiographical self in this future state, which is another more evidence that our own model of self of our own inner thinking and identity comes from these primate regions. Um, and so, okay, if we now take my little framework of comparing this concept to what new behavioral abilities do we see in primates? Uh, again, there's another sort of strong three, which I think one can make a strong argument, emerges from this idea of mentalizing, modeling your own self. One is theory of mind. So there's lots of good evidence that primates uh, can imagine other people's uh, perspective. 
um, which of course it makes sense. What do we do when we imagine someone's per uh, perspective? We put ourselves in their shoes. We take a model of ourself and then we change the context and see what would we do if we were in their situation? It's exactly what we would expect from uh, sort of self-modeling. Um, seems to exist in primates. Second is really strong imitation learning. Um, primates are very good at learning motor skills through observation. Um, and at first it's not obvious why mentalizing should support that, but taking the lens of AI, it actually is quite clear. One of the problems imitation learning in the world of AI is people are constantly making micro adjustments. And if you just do raw imitation learning, you learn the wrong things. So we've tried this with uh, autonomous vehicles where uh, we've trained AI systems to directly copy drivers. And this doesn't actually work very well because what you don't realize when you're driving, you're constantly making these micro adjustments. And so what happens, the AI system learns to do these micro adjustments in the wrong ways. And so Andrew Ang actually came up with this really clever idea called inverse reinforcement learning. Was that his idea? And this is how he, I, uh, yeah, Andrew Ang was one of those, and, and uh, Peter Abel yeah, came up with okay, this idea. Okay, I didn't, I, I always struggle with where ideas originate, so. Uh, I, well, it's possible. I guess they were, they did the mo some of the most famous work on okay, it. It's yeah, yeah. definitely possible. The core idea was somewhere yeah, else. Sorry to um, interrupt. I just. Uh, no, no, no. So, so inverse reinforcement learning is the idea of, well, what if first, when you watch someone do really complicated motor behaviors, you try to infer their reward function. In other words, understand what they're actually trying to do. And then you train yourself just to fit the reward function you've inferred. So when you watch someone drive, you realize, oh, they're trying to stay in the lane. So then when you drive, you're not copying them directly. Now you're trying to stay in the lane. And then you can reward and punish yourself as to how well you're adhering to the inferred reward function. And so we have found inverse reinforcement learning to be a very effective mechanism in making imitation learning AI systems work well. This directly maps very nicely to the idea of mentalizing because we know primates are very good at looking at someone do something and infer what they're trying to do. And we know this because when we make a chimpanzee, if we have a puzzle box, this, has been, this experiment has been replicated many times, a puzzle box, and you have a human experimenter do all of these steps to get inside the puzzle box. Primates, chimpanzee will learn this immediately, but they will skip steps that are obviously irrelevant. So they're not directly copying you. If you scratch your head in the middle of the experiment or you just tap something, they don't do those steps. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, a human will do the irrelevant steps, which is a whole other thing, but a chimpanzee won't, a which child, means they're clear. Human child anyway, right? Human child yeah. will, yes. Um, so, so anyway, so being able to reason about the mind of another is clearly useful in imitation learning because it helps you understand what their intent is. And then the last is anticipating future needs. This is the most controversial because there's not a lot of studies on this. Um, but this is the ability to actually take an action today to satisfy a need you do not currently have. Mm. So we humans do this all the time. We go grocery shopping when we're not hungry. And so this is actually a harder ability than just model-based reinforcement learning, because I don't only have to imagine an outcome that then I get excited about now, which would be like me imagining going to my refrigerator and grabbing food, which sounds nice because I'm hungry right now. I need to imagine going to the grocery store now because tomorrow I will be hungry, even though now I'm not. And so this means we have to be able to infer future need states or future reward signals that we don't currently have. And so there's not been a lot of studies on this across animals. There's been one relatively famous one um, that is really interesting. It, people need to try and replicate it. Um, 
but it's suggested that primates can do this and other mammals cannot, which is a fascinating finding. So the way they did this study was they had uh, rats and monk squirrel monkeys choose between two options. One was a high treat option and one was a low treat option. So the high treat option gives lots of food. The low treat option gives very few food, but they intentionally chose treats that induced a lot of thirst. So dates and raisins make both uh, primates and uh, uh, rats very, very thirsty. And so if you choose the high treat option, you're going to not get water for a very long period mm -hmm. of time. And if you choose the low treat option, you're going to get water immediately. And they baselined it to ensure that both animals, they chose ratios of foods so that induced the equal percentage uh, increase in thirst in both animals, both species. And they found that rats were unable to choose the low treat option in anticipation of their future thirst, but monkeys were. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, what does anticipating future needs have to do with mentalizing? Well, is imagining a future state of your own mind where you need different things really any different than imagining the state of another human being or another species and imagining how they might feel in a new situation? Um, and so uh, Thomas Suttendorf is the one who came up with this idea that future need state anticipation might really be the same underlying algorithm as theory of mind. Um, imagining the state of someone else that's disjointed from your own is not really different than imagining a future state of yourself that's disjointed from your own. So we see all three of these abilities perhaps emerge in primates from this idea of mentalizing granular prefrontal cortex, sensory cortex. So, I mean, I, I want to interrupt you like at every sentence because um, so many of these <laughs> topics are, you know, fascinating and, and merit their own uh, book length treatment, right? Uh, and somehow you've you've um, uh, included it all in, in your book. It may be a non sequitur, but thinking about mentalizing, having a... Uh, a simulation of a simulation. Could you improve the human brain? Like if we if we just uh, took what you know now from your uh, and, and given your background and and your engineering sort of uh, perspective, do, you know, can you? So what we're talking about so far is like the story of evolutionarily how these things have come about, what purposes they've served, what functions that they serve. Um, I mean. Where's the limit? Could we have a simulation of a simulation of a simulation? Would that if we just keep adding uh, on new simulations of simulations, would that improve things? Why and how? Like, or can we even talk about the the story of the future improved brain? So I think there's um, what's interesting is our goal in AI is clearly not to just recreate the human brain. I mean, the human brain has lots of flaws. Uh, I mean, it has, it has intellectual flaws and instinctual flaws. Um, and both of these are problematic. So instinctual flaws, I think are easier to understand. Um, and perhaps what people are more afraid of in the world of AI instinctual flaws are things like in the political world that primates evolved in, we became very status seeking, obsessed with our places in hierarchy. Primates are hierarchical species, very gossipy, always trying to cozy up to the people at the top, et cetera. We see this in chimpanzee societies. This is the worst version of humans, right? Um, <laughs> do we want to recreate AI systems that have the same instincts? I, I hope not. Uh, um, so I think there's, you know, there's lots of instinctual things uh, that humans evolved to have that are evolutionary baggage that we probably don't want, almost definitely don't want in AI systems. There are also intellectual flaws. So um, as much as there are things human brains have that we want to recreate in AI systems, there's also things we don't want to send along. For example, um, humans uh, reason about things by simulating 
which has benefits, but also has downsides. So uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman has something called, the, I don't know if he created it, but he talks a lot about it in his work called the representative heuristic. Mm. And so, for example, this, this, the famous uh, one, example of this that he came up with is suppose uh, Kathy is meek and has glasses. Is she more likely to be a librarian or a construction worker? And everyone says librarian. But that fails to include base rates. There are there are way more construction workers than there are librarians. So even if 5% of construction workers are meek and wear glasses and 95% of librarians are meek and wear glasses, it's very likely that there's actually more meek uh, glasses wearing construction workers. But that's not how we thought about the problem. We imagined a librarian and imagined a construction worker and compared your description of Kathy to each of these two things. Mm -hmm. And so that is the way in which mammals tend to reason about things, but it comes with lots of biases and flaws. Another example of this is confirmation bias. Um, perception by inference, in other words, trying to render a simulation of the world uh, and then comparing our sensory inputs to that simulation and confirming that what we see is aligned with what we're imagining, which is how we perceive the world and has lots of benefits, also comes with these other problems, such as confirmation bias. We always start with a prior. We start with an idea of what we think is true, and then we wait, we, we only update it if evidence is sufficiently different to require us to update our priors. But that leads to things like confirmation bias. If I believe the state of the world is a certain way, I'm filtering the world through that lens, um, which is how a, you, what you would expect from a Bayesian brain. So it's also very efficient. Uh, and so there are a lot of benefits for yes. those as well, right? So exactly. Very efficient. But uh, it comes with problems. Confir we see lots of issues with confirmation bias. Um, so these are things where, just two examples of things that if we were to try to create a superintelligence that is the best of humanity, um, I think we would want it to have some forms of Bayesian reasoning, reasoning by simulating, but also have other mechanisms to make sure they consider base rates. Um, they are more, uh, they're more accurate at updating priors if new evidence is contrary to what their expectations were, things like that. Um, so, so I think the, the goal of learning about the brain to help AI is not to recreate it wholesale, but to mm -hmm. find the special components of human intelligence um, and gift those to AI systems. For example, I think mentalizing is actually a great one where um, it actually begs some interesting philosophical questions. When one of the main problems with AI systems, um, and Nick Bostrom talks about this a lot, is ensuring they understand what we say. And uh, this is you know, famously talked about as the paperclip problem. He has an allegory where you have a super intelligent AI running a paperclip factory, and we say, hey, can you maximize paperclip production? And then it turns Earth into paperclips. And the point of that allegory is the AI wasn't evil, it just took our requests and satisfied the criteria, maximize production of paperclips. And it reveals that it's actually very hard for humans to synthesize their preferences in words. And we don't notice this at all because our language is empowered by both brains having mentalizing. If you tell me when I'm running a factory, if you're my boss and you say, hey, please maximize production of paperclip, I'm going to imagine what you actually mean by that. I'm going to mentalize about your mind and your preferences and simulate options. It's going to be immediately obvious to me if I destroyed Earth with paperclips, that's not what you wanted. Um, and so gifting AI systems with some mechanism of mentalizing about what we mean by what we say is clearly going to be a very important 
uh, path towards AI safety. It comes with some other hard problems though. Um, first, uh, the way it seems that we mentalize is by having a relatively common set of neural machinery such that I can infer how you would feel about things because I'm not so different from you, right? I, there's, there is a relationship between the way I feel about the world and the way you feel about the world such that I can, I can put myself in your shoes and do a decent job of predicting what you might want. But if we build AI systems without human preferences, because they're not humans, how do we ensure that they're going to be good at simulating what a human would want? And that's actually a very hard problem um, because we don't want them to have human preferences, right? We don't want them to have all of the bad stuff that humans want, but we want them to understand what we mean. And that's actually a very challenging line to draw. Yeah. Do we understand what we mean? <laughs> No, we don't, but we can do a better job. Uh, we do a better job than, than, uh, the computers and Nick Bostrom's allegories. Yeah. Um, so I think if you think about like this, uh, the, the way I would imagine this is the information translated in words between brains. Um, we do a decent job of taking the possible meanings of it and making a smaller bounding box, which is relatively accurate more accurate than all the possible meanings, but it's not perfect. We can mm -hmm. still clearly misinterpret what people are saying. Um, but we definitely, we remove a lot of these crazy scenarios that are actually not obvious to remove, like destroy earth and create paperclips. Yeah. You used the word perfect there. And, um, something I was thinking while you were, uh, discussing this was, um, that there's just such a normative component to, building quote intelligence, right? So first of all, you know, thinking about our biases, right? And, and what brains do that are good and bad, those terms, good and bad, there's a valence, there's a normative component and what we want AI to do. Um, uh, and whether we want them, whether we want AI to emulate brains and which functions, which algorithms, etc. cetera. Um, do we, so, so the more that I learn about, uh, brains and minds and AI, the less I know, right? So this is a common trope. Um, and I'm wondering if you have felt the same way. I don't know what intelligence is. Do you know what intelligence is? So so we use the term intelligence willy-nilly, right? And and there's a normative component. There's a, a the perfect intelligence, right, that we want AI to do, uh, that our brains do and don't do. But do we know what we're even talking about when we I'm sorry, this is such a, I know this question gets asked a lot, like what is no, intelligence, I, but it is a question. I think it's a great question. I mean, I, uh, you'll notice that in my book, I don't actually define intelligence. You do not. Uh, I, I was wondering because I, <laughs> I, I, I emailed you and I was like, I don't think you defined intelligence in your book, which is great. I mean, that was an, that was intentional. That was very much intentional. I mean, I, I deliberated for a while as to whether or not to define it. And the reason I didn't is because, um, there is actually no really good rigorous definition of intelligence. What we mean by intelligence is uh, many different things in many different contexts, but all of them are informed by the story of how the brain works and how the brain evolved and how it relates to what we're building in AI. So it almost is not necessary to rigorously define it when in all of the possible scenarios of how you define it, the story is useful in the same ways. So I just, it just felt unnecessary and I'll describe why. Um, so for example, some people think about intelligence as the ability to uh, solve problems, to achieve goals. 
Now, that's a really interesting definition because then a lot of things, it requires us to imbue a thing with goals. Mm -hmm. And that is actually really hard to assess. What do we mean by a thing having a goal? And in that lens, does the universe have a goal of which is entropy? And is it solving lots of problems to maximize entropy? On what grounds do we say the universe doesn't have a goal? Um, and uh, some people say, well, the definition of intelligence has to include some notion of learning because a pre-programmed robot in a factory um, that we have given a tree of if-else statements um, to, to solve problems but doesn't learn is not actually intelligence. It's a accurate, you know, this is the, the human-centered um, AI lab run by Fei-Fei Lee, uh, Fei they have a wonderful definition of intelligence, which is fuzzy, right? They say it's uh, something along the lines of anything that can learn or use techniques to uh, solve problems or achieve goals in an uncertain world. So it's a bunch of hedges, right? Because it means multiple things. Uh, a convolutional neural network is intelligent uh, because it can identify objects. It doesn't really achieve a goal. Um, maybe during learning it had a goal of minimizing errors in a sense, but it's not really seeking a, a reward function in the world. Um, but in some sense, it's solving a problem of identifying an object that is different than the training data it saw. So I just think it's not, it's not obvious what we mean by intelligence. And whenever we imbue things with the notion of goals, we're entering philosophical territory because it's actually very hard, if at all possible, to definitively prove the existence of a goal from the outside. Hmm. Um, I mean, what we mean by a goal, I think most people would say is not just um, the optimization of some equation, because if that's what you're saying, then the universe has a goal, right? Just maximizing right. entropy. Right. Um, so yeah, that's why I kind of avoided it. Uh <laughs> no, I, I actually appreciated it. I only realized it like toward the end of the book, uh, it's like, I don't think he, and then I, you yeah. know, I didn't go back uh, because I have a paper copy and I can't just do control F or <laughs> command F to, to try to find it. Um, so I commend you for that actually. Uh, but you also don't talk about in the book, you don't talk about why you don't define it. Yeah. Um, there's that uh, old phrase that, well, how, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? I don't remember who, mm -hmm. that's a butchering that quote, but, and you know, and everyone says, um, by writing things down, it helps crystallize how you think about things. But a, a different way to think about that is when you write something down, it, it biases you to think about the way, think about it in the way that you wrote it down, right? So it, it, it kind of serves as a uh, crystallization and biasing. So sometimes I'm afraid to write something down because I want to stay, uh, I want to continue to have multiple ideas instead of uh, mm. commit to an idea. Um, where was I going? I think I had a question about this, but, um, so, well, did you, is that what happened with you? Like you said it was very satisfying, right? Um, as you were writing, I mean, is this the formation of your ideas and helps helping to crystallize those ideas? And did you learn what you thought by writing it? Um, no, I, I mean, I think I really, I think it's, this is where being an outsider, I think, was useful because I, there's no, I'm not pursuing a career in academia. I'm not trying to be right. I'm trying, I'm trying to discover what is right, whether it's my idea or someone else. I mean, most of the ideas in the book, the vast majority of them are others. And I do my absolute best to cite them and give them credit. And I'm just piecing it together. Um, 
So I think not having an ulterior sort of Mm-hmm. career motive is is freeing in the sense that like I'm very willing to throw away ideas that are clearly not right um and I don't feel um attached to one idea cuz like I'm defining my career on theory x um so so there were many places when I was doing a reading of this stuff where I did throw away ideas um oh, okay. and uh it just got to the point where I th- it became clear to me that the, it was a useful first approximation that a lot of the evidence aligned to. Um, and to make sure I wasn't barking up the wrong tree, I submitted a lot of the ideas to multiple peer review journals, made sure they went through peer review, then got the ideas published, then collaborated with a variety of neuroscientists to update them. There were flaws in the original ideas that got tinkered with, with new evidence. Um, so, so no, I don't really feel yeah, I don't feel like I had this idea and then I forced evidence into it. I think it really emerged from the evidence, but it's not perfect. I mean, I think I can readily cite off the counter evidence that complexifies the model. For example, there is one study that did find latent learning in a fish, mm-hmm. only done once, uh, hasn't been replicated, but that would be a very interesting counterexample to the idea that fish do not have model-based reinforcement learning. Um, that could mean multiple things. It could mean that it independently evolved in that species of fish, um, or it could mean the basic idea that uh, model-based reinforcement learning only exists with the neocortex in mammals is wrong um, and actually did exist in early fish. Um, there are uh, open questions on the degree with which uh, primates actually can engage in, in anticipating future needs. Um, mm-hmm. So people have questioned that study I cited on the raisins and uh, water, um, and people are asking for replications of it. I think there was one attempt to replicate it that didn't find as strong uh, the result. So it's possible that that actually is not uh, uh, the case. So yeah, I think you know it's the verdict. Of course, is still out, but given the available evidence, I think it's an instructive first approximation. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, again, I'll say, it. I mean, it's a beautifully written book uh, and just chock full of information. So I, I highly recommend it um, to people. I struggle to form uh, coherent questions around the, what I'm about to ask you, but so math is beautiful. Um, algorithms are beautiful. The idea of a clean function is beautiful, like cortex does X. Do you still... So the more that I learn uh, about these notions, uh, cognition, etc., the less I'm I'm willing to say brain area X does cognitive function Y. Um, The cortical column does generative prediction, etc., something that you talk about in the book, because... As you were just saying, all stories become more <laughs> complicated the more information there is. Um, has your journey into learning about these things has it has it are, are you still married to the idea of a that the brain does an algorithm that uh, there is a function uh, that is you know consistent across, for example, neocortical columns um, everything the way that we naturally need to think about things is to simplify them and, and say yeah. brain area X does function Y. Um, do you still, do you think in those terms? So I think actually one of the motivations for having an evolutionary story was, I mean, one of my original introductions, I went away from this cause it felt too, uh, 
aggressive against the idea of compositionality, meaning that like okay. brains have fair like functions. Because the goal of the book isn't to be a takedown of that idea. But one of the motivations for the evolutionary story is to avoid the mistake of trying to reverse engineering the brain by assigning functions and decomposing it. Okay. Because what the question we ask is not, what does the neocortex do? The question is, when you add a neocortex to this soup of complicated stuff, what new abilities emerge? Hmm. Which is a subtle difference, but an important one, because there's many ways that adding this thing to the soup of complex, a complex emergent network could lead to the results that you see that doesn't require the function of the neocortex to be thing ABC. Mm -hmm. um, so I find the evolutionary story to be a really useful tool to avoid uh, this idea that neocortex does this, the basal ganglia does that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's, it's almost definitely the case that our desire to assign clean functions to things uh, is wrong. Um, and I think the more evidence that emerges uh, continuously shows, shows that. Um, which is one reason why I think one of the ways that AI can really help understanding the brain is I think my hunch tells me the next two decades or so is going to see a really big explosion in computational neuroscience, where we can start, instead of just trying to model what does the column do, we can actually start trying to do something closer to whole brain modeling mm. and just say, hey, what if we just try and approximate what different structures individually algorithmically are doing, not assigning a function, just saying algorithmically it's doing something akin to X. And we start wiring uh, an artificial whole brain model up, and then we try and simulate the emergent properties of that, which is very different than saying neocortex does this and then basal ganglia does that. So, um, so yeah, no, I guess long-winded way to say I, I don't feel married to the idea of uh, specific functions. I. The only thing that I think mechanistically is really useful about approaches like Jeff Hawkins's approach, which I am really amenable to, is which I would draw a distinction between what Jeff Hawkins is doing and the attempt to assign function to structure. What he's doing is really trying to assign algorithm to structure. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a viable approach because it's not the same thing to say cognition or object recognition happens in the neocortex, but it it's different to say this specific algorithm is being implemented here and in partnership with the other algorithm over here in a broad network leads to these emergent properties um, and these abilities and these functions. Um, and so I, I do think looking at the algorithms implemented by structures is a more fruitful approach than trying to assign functions to structures. Gotcha. Uh, this makes me think about um, the idea of process, which you... Um talk about in the book in terms of what what language uh, gives us. And so your fifth breakthrough uh, is speaking, uh, which is, you know, of course, wrapped up with with language. Um, and you use the um, example of DNA as enabling things, right? So it's it's the process that it enables and not, you know, the function itself, for example. And then you make that analogy to language as well. So could you just talk a little bit about and we have to, of course, you know, with large language models these days, we have to uh, touch on large language models and what language uh, enables, et cetera. And, and so can you talk a little bit about the fifth breakthrough from that perspective? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there's been so much work on language and the evolution of language, and it's still very inconclusive. Um, but I think what there is broad agreement around is why language is so powerful as a ability. Um, and, 
uh, one reason why language is so powerful is it enables interbrain transfer of ideas. So if you think about sources of learning through the evolutionary story, um, uh, you can almost see the entire breakthrough, five breakthroughs model through the following lens. It has been a progressive expansion of, of getting new sources of learning for brains. So the very first uh, vertebrates, reinforcement learning, they could learn from their own actual actions. So a source of learning new arbitrary behaviors comes from actually trying things and seeing whether they succeed or fail. With trial mammals, error. trial and error. With mammals, there's a new source of learning in addition to trial and error. Not only your own actual actions, but your own imagined actions. So I can imagine doing things, learn from the outcomes, and then make a decision without actually doing it. So that's a new source of learning. With primates, with the ability to understand the intent of others doing things, a new source of learning was other people's actual actions. So I can watch you use a tool and I now can learn to use the same tool simply by figuring out what you're trying to do and then uh, teach myself in my head to try and do the same thing. And then I imitate the, these skills. But throughout this entire arc, it has never been possible for another animal to learn from another's imagined outcomes. In other words, I can't look into your brain and see the result of your own simulation and then change my behavior on the basis of that. That is what language enables us to do. So language enables me to go on a hunt and come back and inform you of my own episodic memory of the event. I remember going there and the red snake being edible and the green snake being really dangerous. I take that simulation, I can translate that to you. So now that's part of your mental model of the world. Um, we can plan a hunt by saying, hey, let's split up. I'm gonna go right, you go left. I'm gonna chase the animals in your direction and then you're gonna catch them. That is me engaging in vicarious trial and error imagining a plan that works and then translating that plan to you and three of our friends. And then we all execute the same plan. So that's what's so incredible about language. But what ends up happening as a consequence of that is this process that has been talked about, you know, ad nauseum in the humanities and, and uh, anthropology, which is culture, which is this ability to have ideas that are passed between brains in a non-uniform way. So in other words, ideas, uh, this is um, uh, Richard Dawkins's memes, ideas that lead to uh, the successful uh, survival of, of individual humans are more likely to propagate mm. than ideas that don't. So this becomes almost a secondary layer of evolution, which is the evolution of ideas. So um, one form of ideas is tool use. So um, if we successfully figure out how to make uh, bone needles for sewing, that idea is really useful and that idea will be propagated uh, through generations, they can start adding to those ideas because they accumulate. Ideas start accumulating as they're passed uh, thoughtfully. Ideas or memes can also include cultural principles, how we choose to treat each other, um, um, how we deal with people who violate what we think is right and wrong, how we, you know, that type of stuff. Um, so what language enables by transferring ideas um, and thus enabling ideas to transfer across generations and persist is it enables this process of idea evolution or memes. Um, and that is sort of what I call the singularity that already happens, um, where now all of a sudden there's this explosion of complexity that's never happened before. So uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but the book is framed around five breakthroughs and then uh you speculate on perhaps a sixth uh breakthrough do you want to talk about that sure yeah okay 
um, which is maybe you can describe what the, so I was asking you what you, how one would improve the human brain, right? Because if we think of evolution as an arrow, which it's not, we're at the peak of that uh, arrow, which we aren't. Um, but this is all we have to kind of compare to, right? So um, it's hard to, it's hard to predict the future, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you, you do speculate a little bit what uh, the sixth breakthrough could be, and uh, it, it is the artificial intelligence, essentially us passing on uh, our intelligence to artificial intelligence, or, or maybe you can correct me. So I think it's hard to argue that the next big frontier will not be building artificial intelligence in our image, in, in a silicon-based medium. In our um, image. Just, Yes. And I think the reason it will be in our image is because the economic incentive is to, there's two reasons why it'll be in our image. One, the economic incentive is for human usefulness. What will humans pay for? Um, and that means it's going to be some, it's going to be wrapped around some notion of human preferences and desires because it's, we're going to want them to do things that satisfy human needs, at least in the beginning. So in that sense, they're going to be imbued with at least some form of what humans want. An example of this is language. You know, if another species were building an AI system um, and they communicated through non-language mechanisms, one of the breakthroughs that they built into the AI system is not going to be language. And yet the, right now, most of the AI investment dollars are going into scaling up language models. Language mm -hmm. is a very human thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason we do that is because that's how humans want to interact with these AI systems. Um, so I think, so So one is clearly going to be, I think they will be imbued with human uh yeah, they'll be imbued with human preferences on or, or human like abilities on two grounds. The second ground um, is that uh, we can't help but think about things the way we think about things. So, so, so uh, that's a tautology. I, that I is a tautology. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, and what that means is when we're trying to uh, build uh, um, something. Uh, that is quote unquote intelligence when we can't rigorously define intelligence, which probably means it's some complex self image that we have. We're bastardized. Trying to build things. I, I would right. add bastardized. Right. The, yeah. We're trying to build something that's just like vaguely like us. Um, it's, it's very likely we're going to start imbuing our own types of stuff on them. Um, mm. We're going to want them to smile when we are laughing. It's going to be weird to us if they're not engaging with us on some way that we understand. Um, so, so I think they will have some notion of, of their creators, which will, which obviously were us, but they're also going to have lots of abilities that we don't have. Um, for example, uh, there's no reason why these AI systems will have any reason to die. Um, they won't, there's no reason why these systems will naturally, you know, fade the way that a biological brain does. Um, there's also no reason why we have to imbue these systems with the evolutionary baggage of us primates that, uh, you know, seek hierarchy, want to dominate others, are constantly asking uh, and referencing our own egos compared to other people um, that are competitive. All these things that are like the worst versions of of us. There's no reason why an AI system should have any of uh, any of that. And I hope we don't imbue <laughs> AI systems with that. Um, so. So I think the big question in uh, the next you know, century, which there's very big disagreement uh, on from various people in the field, is what does the future of us plus AI look like? And I think there's really only three outcomes. One outcome is 
we subdue AI through regulation or something else where it never becomes human-like. Um, and so it just becomes another tool like a computer and humanity persists and evolution ensues uh, as biological evolution has through genetic variation. The other extreme of this, which I think is more likely, fortunately or unfortunately, is that we humans are just supplanted with AIs. Um, in other words, um, eventually AIs are so human-like that we have AI-like children. And eventually culture will shift towards it being odd to have a biological child that will suffer from disease and will inevitably die and have all these limitations when you have your AI child, which can live forever and doesn't suffer from depression and all of these things. And I think whether we like it or not, I'm not saying this is good or bad, but I think it is likely over time, people's choices might shift away from having biological children of their own volition. I can tell um, you as a, as a parent, it's odd currently to have a child that isn't always tethered to a screen. <laughs> yes, right. Already. So we're already kind of hybrids, which goes to the, the third option, which is a middle ground, which is what I think is, is less likely, but a virtuous one to pursue, which is somehow some merging between us and these AI systems, which is what Elon is trying to work with at Neuralink, where we become these sort of cyborg hybrids. Um, the reason I think that's unlikely is because I think the technological challenge of building human-like AI systems in, sil in silicon is astronomically easier than the technological challenge of how do you translate the biological signals in a human brain to an AI system like that. Okay. Um, so, so, for example, uh, a very crude way to think about this is if we wanted to actually have a download of human thoughts um, that was fully accurate, we would need to record every neuron in your brain in real time. That is impossible. I, I mean, or it's te it's technologically so infeasible right now that people can't even conceive of how you would do that. I mean, you can't put a wire on every neuron in your brain and record its action potentials. Um, you could try and just do cortical neurons, but even our, our we as we've talked about here, um, I think it's unlikely that uh, the cortex is doing enough of everything to actually understand what you're doing without also recording the thalamus and the basal ganglia and all these other things. Mm. So um, I, I just, you know, hopefully I'm wrong, but I, I don't see, I see lots of good ideas that make me confident that we're going to have human-like AI systems in the near future, near future being in the next decade. And I have not seen any actual ideas on how we're possibly going to take a human brain and reliably merge it with an AI brain in a way that actually lets me do things like, hey, I want to, in the matrix, download the ability to drive a helicopter. Mm -hmm. Or I want to learn French, push a button and know French. Um, uh, I don't see any good ideas that I think make me confident we'll be able to do stuff like that. Well, thank you for uh, putting the results of your learning into the book, um, and and thanks for my copy of it. Um, so I appreciate the conversation with me today, and and so thanks for spending time with me, and and thanks for writing the book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. 
Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you, thank you for your support. See you next time.